welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome, friends, to this week's episode of the Bronovo Podcast. My guest this week is Paul Sippel. Paul is a financial advisor and former accountant who works with small businesses and individuals to help them decide which 401k plan provider is best suited for them. His thesis and his experience specializing in the 401k field for the last 12 years is that many of the plans are not well suited for actually maximizing savings for investors and they are quite opportunistic in how they charge fees and make money for the financial advisors and the and the planned facilitators who are charging for an incommensurate amount of work. So essentially a flat fee for the amount of assets under management or assets invested, when in reality, they're not the actual groups doing the investments. They're more the investment vehicle. So interesting topic and conversation. We also get into some macroeconomics and discuss the economy at the moment. Some terms like inflation, interest rates that you might be hearing thrown around. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Paul, many financial professionals, especially money managers, their whole strategy, their whole purpose day to day is to make money, grow a pile of money essentially, but also get a cut off the top. And your approach is somewhat different. So where do you fit into the scheme of, uh, or (laughs) the scheme, I guess, conveys my attitude the landscape of money managers and what speciality or specialty do you bring to the conversation? So the money managers all charge the same way. I'm more of a fan of the passive, passively managed approach where you're investing in a broad basket of stocks that mirror what the market is doing through what's called an index, whether it be the S&P 500 or there's a fund called the Total Stock Market Index Fund. Vanguard is traditionally one of the low-cost leaders. Uh, Fidelity has started really competing with Vanguard in that area. Uh, So in one sense, I'm just someone that helps select money managers like any other financial advisor does. But what's interesting about this space and 401k plans and frustrating for me is that all of the other service providers, which are known as record keepers, advisors, um, and sometimes administrators and the custodians, They all charge an asset-based fee, which advisors actually refer to amazingly as a management fee, even though they're not actually doing the managing. To your point, it's the money managers of the funds themselves that are actually managing these plans. Yet financial advisors also market themselves as managers and are charging the same way. What is very different about the way I approach the business and the way I assess fees is that I offer what's known as a flat annual retainer fee. And this is really important because it truly reflects and is based on the level of services that are being provided. The asset-based fee that all these service providers assess is completely divorced from the level of services provided. And in these small business plans, where often there's several million dollars in assets, but maybe only a handful of participants, this is very true especially in engineering and architecture firms, as well as medical practices and law firms, 
which also have significant contributions amongst the employees and the employers, where the fees have literally nothing to do with the level of services provided. And for that reason, the participants are severely overcharged. So I really think the focus needs to be not only on advisors assessing a flat annual retainer fee, like you know, $5,000 a year, regardless of the assets, but the advisor only being focused on record keepers, administrators, and custodians who are also charging based on the level of services provided, which is namely a flat fee. And what this leads into is it occurring to the employer, oh, I can actually just pay for these fees outright, and I don't have to pass on any of these fees to the participants. And this is why I created a website called 401kproviderSearch.com because so few people understand how to go about choosing a provider. Typically, they just go to one of the big ones. They don't pay any fees at the employer level, so everything is fine. But this shows how everybody makes their money, who all the players are, how the industry works. I put a quote from Ted Benna, the one, the guy who actually invented the 401k, who's echoed very similar criticisms to advisors that I have, along with John Oliver. If anyone just wants to Google John Oliver 401k, he's a you know comedian, political commentator, and he's also echoed a lot of the sentiments uh, you know that I that I have and raised some of the same concerns. Awesome. Yeah, it's interesting because essentially the, the advisors in this situation are not picking the stocks that comprise the fund and the consumer could just go direct to the funds themselves and invest. But yeah, so I, I think what I have also picked up is that at a certain level of wealth, people want security or they want a professional to grow their pile of money for them if they're not going to actively invest uh, themselves. But so I guess, I guess to, to back it up, what is the history of the 401k? Why was it introduced and how has it evolved to where it sits now as the main retirement savings vehicle for private sector employees? Yeah. So it's been described as there being uh you know, several pillars and, you know, the main pillar now has been the 401k. Uh, Social Security is one of them, but we can't define on, uh, we can't depend on Social Security. And then the other pillar being pension plans. And, you know, there are people that still have pension plans, uh, especially those at large companies, even some small businesses have pension plans, Uh, but that's pretty rare. So now we're pretty much dependent uh, and the 401k is the main pillar. I believe, I can't remember the exact year, it might have been 1981. Uh, it was a gentleman by the name of Ted Benna who was looking for retirement solutions for his clients. And he discovered, I believe what he described as a loophole in the Internal Revenue Code uh, that allowed executives to contribute uh, retirement funds on a pre-tax basis. And now that's evolved uh, where people get a little confused about what a Roth is. The Roth IRA is an individual retirement account where you can contribute your money on a post-tax basis. But there's also what's known as a Roth 401k. So just about every 401k plan out there has that Roth component. So you could also contribute your money to the 401k on a post-tax basis. And that's typically what people rely on for their retirement. And for those who work at large companies, it's a, you know, it's I still think it's a pretty good tool. Because the 
service charges per person for these large companies are just astronomically smaller. And ironically, those are the companies who've gotten sued for excessive fees uh, because some attorneys argue that even those large companies' fees are still excessive. But that is splitting hairs uh, and it's minuscule compared to the level of fees that the smaller plans uh, are paying at the participant level because they just don't have the economies of scale. So in summary, because there's so much there, there's so little attention being paid to 401k plans that are, you know, for the small businesses because the business owner and the HR person and the CFO don't have time, don't have the level of sophistication needed. And also they just, they just don't have the knowledge. Um, and the participants, even with the new fee disclosure called 408B2 for the employers and 404A5 for the employees, even if they do actually look at their statements, which nobody does, they're not even going to understand what these service charges mean, and they have no means of comparison. Uh, so that's kind of a whole summary of how things got uh, to where they are, and that's why the website I created, 401kproviderSearch.com, that helps people find a, an affordable 401k provider that a lot of people don't know about and are not entered into the benchmarking comparison when you're comparing providers, I think is such an important resource for people. And there's nobody else who's really making this kind of critique to my knowledge. For sure. I originally, I originally found your work because my employer uses guideline, mm-hmm. which is a provider and they had a, they went from a flat fee to a, I believe similarly a percentage for for a total assets fee and got rid of some other transfer fees and used it as a justification of removing the flat fee approach. Yeah, so and kind of yeah. Let me add something to that. They they didn't actually they didn't actually remove the flat fee entirely. You're right. Mm-hmm. Uh they there were some charges that they eliminated, but I'm sure what they did was they calculated it and they were gonna obviously make a lot more money uh by assessing that eight basis point asset based fee. I was very critical when they did that. I uh, thought of it as a bait and switch. So that flat fee, if you go on their website is still there. Some of those uh, charges like for loans and processing that people didn't like, they just replaced it with an asset based fee. The asset based fee cannot be paid by the employer. It's assessed at the participant level. That other flat fee that everyone was paying, that can only be paid by the employer and still is. Now, they're still relatively inexpensive, uh, but yeah, it's very hard to stay in business in the 401k space unless you're continuing uh, to increase uh, your revenue as the assets go up, for sure. And let me add one thing to that, that in many cases for guideline plans, especially these are guidelines. Average plan is under a million dollars and maybe 10 to 15 people. And their whole mission was to, you know, help people invest for retirement affordably. In many cases, I suggest that for a plan like that, you're better off getting rid of it, having no plan and just having an IRA because the contribution limits for an IRA are 6,000 a year whether it's Roth or traditional, plus an additional $1,000 catch-up, which is continuing to increase with inflation, the contribution limits are, uh, for those who are 50 years of age or older. Most of these small plans, they don't contribute enough to justify really any additional charges being assessed, so they're just better off going direct to an IRA with none of these charges at all. 
I guess the challenge would be say an employer has a mix of people who are hitting the, I believe it's 18,000 this year, 401k cap, and then some who don't, who are not, say who are well below the 6,000 IRA cap. So then how, what do they do with those employees? Yeah. I mean, for those who have the opportunity, and I should have also mentioned the 401k plan or really the group sponsored retirement plan, the 401k is the employee contribution. The match and or profit sharing component, the profit sharing contribution is a contribution that's made regardless of whether or not the participants contribute. And having an employer-sponsored retirement plan, even if there are, are no participant contributions, does give the employers the luxury of making an employer-level contribution. And for those who can contribute, I believe, oh boy, I don't even remember, I think it's 19 or 19.5 this year, the contribution's gone up even more, it was 18 a few years ago. Um, for those, it, it causes a problem with what's called a uh, top heavy plan. There are these discrimination tests where if the higher, highly compensated employees are contributing up to that level and those who are not highly compensated are not maxing out their contributions or at least contributing a much lower level, some of the more highly compensated employees are getting, uh, what's known as redemption checks. So there are ways you can get around that through what's called a safe harbor plan where you're giving everyone a contribution uh, at the employer level at 3% of their salary, and then the uh, more highly comped employees uh, can max out without getting anything returned. But you know, there's pros and cons because that can get expensive for the employer, and they have to decide if that's worth it or if they're just better off just giving a bonus or a higher salary to the employees instead of putting it uh, in a tax deferred retirement plan. It, you know, it's an individualized conversation. For sure. Well, I know my COO listens, so guideline might be in trouble. <laughs> okay. So yep. we're kind of, we're in the weeds right now of plan specific stuff, which I love, but I guess just to back it up to more basic fundamentals of financial literacy, why should someone care about saving for retirement? And what are the means, what are their options for doing so? 401k is one of the options, but what are the other vehicles through which someone can invest money and save money? Yep. I'll, yeah, I'll try to keep it on a higher level. You could tell I, you know, I love all this stuff. So it's real easy to, you know, for sure. get me off on a topic <laughs> and have me get into the weeds. But I mentioned earlier an IRA, which is known as an individual retirement account. That's a perfectly good vehicle to save for retirement has the same exact tax benefits as the 401k. But again, uh, the disadvantage is higher contribution limits. The advantage of the IRA, unlike a plan like guideline that's limited to 40 funds, is that you can invest in any fund that you want. So the IRA is real easy to set up. I have my own with Charles Schwab. That's a great company to use. TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, Vanguard, doesn't matter which one you do, you have access to the same funds, the funds have the same cost. So the IRA is great. If you're a business owner, you can set up what's called a solo 401k. If you're, let's say you're self-employed, uh, just like any other 401k, you can be one person. If it's your own business, you can have a 401k. Uh, there's also another vehicle called the SEP IRA. Uh, that has very high contribution limits. Again, that's if you own a business and let's say you have one or two employees, or if it's just you, and that's something that you can set up, or you can even set up your own pension plan. That's probably not for the layperson. That's for people making 
lots and lots of money or through a company like Charles Schwab, who I have a brokerage account with them as well, just a basic brokerage account. So it's not a tax deferred retirement account. It's just an investment account. You can do it through any company and you can invest in any fund you want. You just don't get the same tax benefits. So when you put money into it, you've got to pay taxes on the earnings and the dividends. But to keep it on a high level, the advantage of the 401k is that when you buy and sell investments, you don't have any capital gains taxes. And dividends, as the growth of the account accumulates, there's no tax on the growth. So when you compare a brokerage account, a taxable account, to a non-taxable account, and you have the same funds, uh, the tax-deferred account will grow more because it doesn't have the taxes that act like a ball and chain dragging down your returns. And there's also a school of thought of people who poo-poo uh, 401ks entirely. Like I'm thinking of uh, a character like Robert Kiyosaki who is having into real estate investing, for example, and, and building a portfolio um, of commercial properties. And his line of thinking, as, as I've listened to his his programs, is that essentially the the 401k promise is a is a a great duping of the american people and they're not going to really have as much saved as they think they do by the end and i mean, i think your work is addressing one way to minimize that exposure because if you can limit the fees you pay over years yeah. you know that compound growth is going to have a big impact but what, how do you approach that argument that only investing in a 401k or a tax deferred account is is a incomplete way to to approach retirement savings? Well, I would partially agree, you know, as you know, you mentioned, I mentioned in terms of excessive fees, if you're in a small business plan, for sure. But certainly 401k plans can also allow you to invest in real estate. There are real estate funds that you can invest in. There are real estate investment trusts. Uh, so, it's not necessarily if you want to, let's say, diversify into real estate, assuming that real estate fund is available. Now, to his point, some 401k plans may not offer specifically a real estate fund. So in that way, if you want to gain more exposure to real estate and your 401k doesn't offer and your employer's not willing to, then you could say it's incomplete. Um, there are other ways, like if you wanted to buy uh, gold and silver, for example, which I've recommended in some of my clients' 401k plans. Typically, those investments or commodities or owning physical gold and silver coins, for example. Again, that's not the only way, but um, that's those are typically not available in 401k plans. So I partially agree that it's not necessarily a complete way to invest if you're particularly savvy. But for the average person, they're probably not going to invest um, in you know commercial or you know real estate properties anyway, and they can still gain exposure in most cases to those asset classes within a four hundred one k plan if they just ask their employer to add those options. Awesome, thank you for yeah giving your perspective on sure. that. I, th- I think I would agree too. I mean, for myself as a young person, I have lofty goals, right, of getting to the point where. <laughs> to grow my wealth, you know, a 401k or a traditional investment classes wouldn't be enough. Right. But that's, you kind of have to work your way to that point. Um, one of the, 
also I think kind of prerequisites to even getting in this game or having this conversation is having the ability to save. And the statistics around, I think it's the threshold of $600, you know, liquid cash, the, the amount of Americans who don't have that kind of money available to them at their disposal because they're living paycheck to paycheck is quite high. So how would you approach a client or coaching someone who is living paycheck to paycheck, wants to break the cycle and has never kind of had the education about saving money as kind of fundamental uh, steps they can take to get to break that cycle of, of, of the paycheck to paycheck uh, rat race, if you will. Yeah. Um, I often recommend even to the participants in 401k plans to hold off on investing in a 401k because that's a long-term savings account that you can't easily get money out of or can't get money out of without a significant penalty, the 10% penalty. And typically if it's the pre-tax 401k, you're also going to pay taxes um, on the withdrawal. I personally do a budget. Now I'm kind of a, a dinosaur and a little bit extreme in how I, I budget being a recovering CPA and former auditor. I've got everything on an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> so what I do is I keep track of all my expenses, literally everything, I like groceries, uh, meals and entertainment, uh, parking, office supplies. And then I categorize it and I just have three categories, date um, and amount and description. And I often recommend people to go through that exercise for at least two to three months because one month of expenses might be different than another and you want to get a good idea of what your average expenses are over a certain period of time. And when you get in the habit of literally manually entering in all of your expenses and then looking at what you spent in each area, it can help instill a greater sense of financial discipline. Now, for those who are a little more technology-oriented, there's some really good budgeting apps, free apps out there like Dave Ramsey's Every Dollar app or Personal Capital has a free app. Everything's linked to your credit card. And that's another good way just to get yourself thinking of a budget. But what I also say is, especially in this time, um, getting more, when I say three to six months savings to people, for a lot of people, it should be closer to six months worth of liquid savings before you do any sort of long-term or 401k investing or investing in a brokerage account. And then you'll start uh, just getting on track so you could maybe get out of that hole uh, living paycheck to paycheck and, you know, stop wasting money even on the smallest of expenses. For sure. Yeah. That's, that's what I've come across to you is the, there's, it really is a wealth of information and resources online about how to yeah build better financial habits and financial literacy because you know, the amount of people who would have considered this level of nuance of picking a 401k provider and then also even things like expense ratios for particular funds is, is quite small, but there's really no reason for that. You know, you, you can get a free Wi-Fi connection in a public library, right, and educate yourself. There are other factors too, like having the time, you know, to, to, to spend to invest in one's self-education, but... I think it's great that you're available and offering your services because there is a, a huge, I would say, knowledge gap between, you know, the the 
symbolic haves and have nots, right? And so the more that we can kind of get this free to market, free to access to information out there, it can help change people's lives. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to add one quick thing about expense ratios. When comparing an expense ratio of an actively managed fund to an index fund, typically I don't like to recommend an actively managed fund because it's very hard to beat the market uh, and to go with a lower expense ratio. But that's not always the case because a fund active versus active, that one might be more expensive. I mean, obviously performance is important, but what I want to stress is that if you compare one index fund to another, one S&P to another, you always want to go to the cheaper one because the S&P is the S&P and you could actually buy that same fund at different prices depending on the provider. So I appreciate your point about about the expense ratio. For sure. Okay, so I guess to a more... um technical question. Let's say someone's in their portfolio and you can see historical performance of a, of a certain fund and also the expense ratio. Is it simply a factor of, okay, let's look at the historic and projected uh, growth of that fund and returns. Calculate out if I invest $100, for example, this is what I'm going to earn back and then also do the same calculation for the expense ratio and see which fund gives you the better return essentially. Is there a more sophisticated way of kind of evaluating how to pick a fund other than the, the kind of simple, this is, what, this, is what, this is what I'm projected to to earn from this fund compared to a different ones? Yeah, I always say, of course, past performance is not a indicator or indicative of future results. Looking at historical performance is a natural tendency, but it is really, really tricky to do that. There are different types of returns, one of which is dollar-weighted returns versus time-weighted returns. And one of the examples I like to give is the CGM Focus Fund. Over a fairly recent 10-year period, it earned, I think, an average of 18% per year. But the average investor lost 11% in that fund. Now, this had a high expense ratio of like 1.23% or something like that. Just to give you an idea, the Fidelity S&P 500 and total market index fund has an expense ratio of 0.015%, not 0.15, But I believe it significantly beat the S&P during that time period. So clearly the lower expense ratio uh, isn't the only thing you want to look at. But yet, in that fund, the average investor, how can the average investor lose 11% when a fund is performing at 18%? It's because nobody buys the fund at the right time and nobody sells the fund at the right time. You're supposed to buy low and sell high. But typically what people do is they buy high and they sell low. After something's gone up a bunch, They uh, then they want to get into it. And then when it starts going down, then they want to get out of it. Uh, so that you can throw a lot of that out the window because – Looking at historical performance, nobody really knows to time it right. One other example is the Lake Mason Value Fund that beat the market for 14 straight years, but then followed with three years of such significant underperformance that all of the gains, or I think almost all, uh, were wiped out. And there were 36 month, 36 rolling 12-month time periods during that 14 years where the fund actually underperformed. So these looking at the historical performance – is basically meaningless and attempting to beat the market. It's kind of like playing blackjack. I know how to count cards. I won't go into a whole, you know, uh, scenario <laughs> how I'm able to do that. But 
the point being that it's, <laughs> it's you're, nice. you're not going to beat the house unless you're a pro. And Warren Buffett has basically advised people to put 90% of their money over time in the S&P 500. And for the average investor, that's probably a much better way to do it. Now, as for what's going to happen in the next 10 years, that's a whole different story. But basically, that's my long-winded way of saying I wouldn't really spend much time looking at historical performances as a means to invest or trying to do any calculations at all. enjoying this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. Following this conversation with our guest, I'll be giving my reflections in the conversation, what we discussed, and what stood out to me most. Get involved in the conversation. Find me on Instagram at Bro Nouveau Pod or send me an email, thomas at bronouveau.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Enjoy the rest of the show. Okay. Good advice. Thank you. So I, I haven't, I don't track the market that actively, but just listening to all the, the moaning about inflation and uh, foreboding and brooding about economic downturn, I, I'm guessing the market's down or it will go down very soon. Um, so by that kind of uh, common philosophy or, or common logic, now would actually be a good time for someone who has who has free capital to buy into funds if and when the market does go down. Maybe. Is that accurate? Uh, maybe. I guess I would say it depends. Uh, if you're in sure. your 20s or 30s or even 40s and you have a very long-term time horizon and you're really not worried about the market fluctuations for 40 years, sure. But keep in mind, the Japanese stock market peaked in 1989. 1989, it still hasn't recovered. That's an awfully long time, <laughs> yeah. 33 years. I mean, yeah. when we think long-term, we usually think maybe 20 years or more. And you think about dollar cost averaging where you're continuing to buy whether the market goes up and down, and this has been a dip. And we may have what's called a bear market rally. The market may go up again. That, that's true. But we had from 1968 to 1981 a period of over a decade that – people call a lost decade with basically no real returns in the market. Keep in mind, nominal returns just mean what we know to returns to be. It's just if we get a 5% return, that's what we made, 5%. But if inflation is 9% and we're making 5%, we actually have a negative 4% real return. Interest rates now are negative, real interest rates that is, that you have a return-free risk where you're guaranteed to get a negative return in any kind of bond or fixed income investment. We got to be really careful to just think buy the dip when market valuations are what they are. It's not Investing is not easy. Buy low and sell high is a simple concept, but it's not always so clear as to what's low. And to just blindly uh, buying a dip it's not always that simple, especially if you have a shorter time horizon. And sometimes it's a good idea, like I was talking about earlier, about looking at alternative asset classes 
like commodities, which have also had a dip but are not as overvalued, to look at these non-correlated assets to help diversify your portfolio. And I'll add one thing. Diversification doesn't mean picking 10 different mutual funds that are all highly correlated, that all invest in U.S. stocks. True diversification is diversifying outside of the U.S. economy and understanding the meaning of correlation, which by definition is the intense, the extent to which two different investments move in the same direction. Negative one correlation, it means they're the opposite. Positive one correlation means they move in the same direction. 0.9 correlation means almost the same direction. And a zero correlation means they have no relationship at all. So, based on what you just said, though, about being skeptical of historical performance, those correlations are based on historical movement, correct? Yes, it, it is based on historical movement, but it's also based on the fact that they are very different kind of investments, that they just don't have mm. a relation to each other. You can buy two different mutual funds, for example, and whether or not they're historically correlated is one thing, but it's kind of like when you go to the grocery store and you think you're, you know, getting diversity in your diet, but they have the same ingredients in it, like high fructose corn syrup and soy and wheat and whatever. And if you look inside these mutual funds and they may have a different name, but they're literally investing in most of the same stocks, whether or not they're historically correlated may not be relevant because they literally have the same investments. Um, Gold and silver, for example, or agriculture and oil are, you know, completely different investments than the S&P 500. And they may move in the same direction, but whether or not they moved in the same direction in the past or not still doesn't change the fact that they are, you know, completely different sectors of the economy. Understood. Okay, so in, in fund picking or, um, I guess diversification of a fund is there a i guess it depends on age group right so i guess let's say for for 25 to 35 individual is there a a basic formula of a mix of fund types to pick from that makes sense um for example 50% us stocks 20% for you know forex or foreign exchange, uh, 10% small cap, for example, is there a kind of good, uh, baseline that one can apply with a uh, relative confidence or is it, is it far too general to say something like that with any confidence? You know, it's a really good question because, you know, of course it's going to depend on the age and the risk tolerance and the individual facts and circumstances going on in someone's life. But there is a fund and there's also a, um, a portfolio that Ray Dalio, uh, he's a billionaire, you know, really knowledgeable investor, has recommended called an all-weather portfolio that I've helped create for one of my clients that does have a mix of bonds and stocks, U.S. stocks um, and commodities in it that's uh, kind of like an economic bomb shelter that's built to withstand any major economic shock because of the absence of correlation uh, between the different asset classes uh, that are in that portfolio. There's an actual fund. If you don't even want to create it yourself, 
that's similar. It's called the Permanent Portfolio Fund. And in really good times, it doesn't perform very well. Uh, but in really bad times like now, it's built so the portfolio doesn't lose as much value as the U.S. Uh, and global stock markets do. So it did much better than most portfolios in uh, in 2008. So that would be a way to construct a portfolio if you're significantly concerned about loss. But if you're young, um, you really don't need any fixed income investments, I don't think. Nick Murray, who wrote a book about 24 years ago called Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth, talks about bonds being like a tranquilizer. Uh, it can help calm you down, <laughs> but it's not necessarily good for you in the long run because over periods of more than 30 years, although I just gave the example of the Japanese stock market of 33 years uh, where it hasn't recovered, but in periods of more than 40 years, I'm unaware of any 40-year period where any other investment has outperformed uh, stocks, namely U.S. stocks. Great. So it sounds like for a young person, it's a better idea than not to a better idea to invest in in stocks than not and let it sit alone. And considering you can't draw on these funds for a long time, it's also a reasonable strategy to go for uh, perhaps a riskier portfolio mix, knowing that you can absorb the the short and medium term waves, uh, term waves, with an eye on the and then the classic. This is actually good too, right? Because the classic kind of investment education that I've absorbed is as you get older, increase your mix um, to bonds and less risky investments and kind of phase that out over time, starting about 40, you know, late 40s, 50, increasing to the point where you're starting to, to cash out. Is that, would you agree with that um, analysis or is that kind of a, a commonly shared strategy that isn't actually, you know, the best, the best option for most people. You know, I always thought that seemed like a good option. Um, you know, the 60, 40 mix and meaning 60% stocks, 40% bonds, all passively managed, real low cost is typically outperformed. Uh, I think the majority of pension funds and you don't need a manager to figure that out, but that in recent years, the last couple of years, it hasn't been true. Uh, bonds have performed terribly. And stocks and bonds, which were supposed to be not correlated to your point about, you know, hey, in the past, it, you could say that if it doesn't matter, uh, then does it not matter if they haven't been correlated in the past? And you're right, because look at what's happened to the bond market. Uh, look at what's happened to treasury bonds. Uh, pension plans are going to implode if the Federal Reserve continues to uh, raise interest rates. So people are going to have to figure out, well, if stocks are going way down and bonds are going way down, um, and I don't want to just leave my money in cash because we've got 9% inflation. Actually, it's much more than 9% if we compare the CPI to the same basket of goods that the CPI was based on back in the early 80s. I think inflation's closer to 20% if we look at it that way. Uh, what do we do? And, you know, I've mentioned commodities, and I think it's important to consider these alternative asset classes, uh, whether you're younger or you're older, uh, because of what we've seen 
uh, happened recently. When interest rates go up, that's typically not good for the stock market, but that's also not good for the bond market. We've had a 40-year run in both stocks and bonds, and we can't necessarily expect that to continue. But most advisors, including me, have never seen um, a serious prolonged downturn in their lifetime. So the, a lot of um, more cautious investors will fall back on gold and silver. Is that because there's only a certain amount physically of gold and silver in the world? So there's some type of um, anchor as opposed to a company's valuation, like tech overvalued tech companies, for example, that have just continued to rise without any real grounding. Um, is, is that why they're a safer investment? Just because there is a, a li- literal you know, physical limitation on how much gold exists? Yeah, that's a very, another, that's an excellent and extremely layered question. I'll try to be succinct, uh, you know, when I respond. That's a very, (laughs) it's a very thoughtful question, actually. Um, This is one of the reasons people argue for a gold standard or a standard based on competing currencies, because the U.S. dollar is not backed by anything. There's no constraints on our government on printing dollars. Uh, I believe we were completely severed. We had a partial gold standard, I think, in 1971. I think it was Richard Nixon that got us completely off the gold standard. And because there's a physical limit of gold uh, that places constraints on governments, they they can't just print gold. They can't create uh, more gold. One of the reasons, and gold and silver, I want to be careful because like they are individually very volatile. It's not, although gold in this time has actually been the most stable investment, not the gold stocks, Mm. uh, but gold itself, the physical gold that that value hasn't changed much. Uh, But, you know, the gold and silver stocks and even gold and silver itself can still be uh, very volatile individually. Um, But I think one of the reasons people, although not now, it's surprising that uh, gold and silver haven't increased significantly in the last couple of years because we printed all this money. But it depends on how you look at it. I mean, years back, gold was $1,000 an ounce. Then it was 2000 Now it's, I think, a little under 1800 So it's gold is still appreciated significantly. But they, gold and silver have intrinsic value. They've, and especially gold, have historically and always been used as money. Gold can't be debased. Uh, so in times when people don't trust governments and governments are debasing their currencies and they lose confidence in the currencies, that hasn't quite happened yet with the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar, despite all the money we've printed, has actually strengthened, um, not relative to gold, yeah. but relative to other currencies. So that hasn't quite happened yet. But I would say that the reason people think of metals as ultimately safer is be- is when they lose confidence in uh, and their government's ability to constrain their desire to debase their own currency. And when they don't trust their own currency anymore, they turn to hard assets that they inherently trust as money because those assets have historically for thousands of years been money. It's such a great example of one of the levers and foundations that make our society work, right? Like this whole financial system is grounded in, in mutual trust and kind of everyone being bought in. 
for example, to the, to the machine of the S&P 500, for example, if, if all investors lost faith in the market and pulled out, then it doesn't exist anymore, right? It, it's kind of this one of the, I feel like it's one of the interesting kind of sub layers that isn't really acknowledged or understood about, <laughs> like, it is important that we have faith in our government and social norms are observed and elections are allowed to happen freely and with transparency because all of it is one of the kind of pillars that supports our society and keeps us all moving forward. Yeah. And, uh, it's a scary time right now. And I think the average person still generally trusts and believes in the market. Uh, but I haven't in my lifetime and I don't think anyone alive today has witnessed this level of currency debasement, this level of money printing. And I think potentially there could be a serious increase in the loss of confidence in our financial institutions. And hey, I'm not suggesting everyone put all their money in gold and silver. I mean, they're, again, highly volatile investments. I think maybe a total of like half a percent or something of everyone's money is invested uh, if that just increases to 5% or so, uh, we could start to see a, a major shift in how the world operates. Interesting. So you're, you're saying um, invested in those metals or just invested in, in general? In general, too. I, I think okay. eventually when people start waking up to the fact that uh, – the market isn't necessarily going to recover anytime soon that the vast majority of companies are significantly overvalued and that we've had a 40 year bond bubble as well. Uh, and that cash, well, that also seems like a safer investment due to the devaluation of our dollar or eventual devaluation of our dollar. Um, there's going to be a fair amount of money that's going to be pouring into commodities. I just don't know when that's going to happen. And I just don't know when people are going to start to wake up to the fact that the federal reserve purporting to fight inflation, barely raising interest rates and to a level that's not even close to what actual inflation is, uh, is not serious. And people are ultimately going to call their bluff. So what is the Fed's provided reasoning for the strategy of, of slow and low inflation rate? They you know, ultimately believe you know, inflation is dangerous and it's, uh, it's getting out of control. And we, we can't you know, have this level of rising prices forever. Uh, things have gotten out of hand and you know, too extreme. And the Federal Reserve is still very powerful. They... They've certainly affected the economy. They're, I think, what you might want to call it like a controlled demolition, uh, a controlled uh, popping of the bubble, not all at once. They're trying to engineer a soft landing. I mean, they're saying they're fighting inflation because, you know, rising prices is especially bad for people of limited means that are on a fixed income and mm -hmm. dependent on Social Security and see uh, rising rents and everything like that. But if you look at what's happened to the market and the economy already and how high our unemployment rate is, just from a small increase in inflation, uh, one-year treasuries and CDs are paying now 3%. Hey, that's much better 
But at the official numbers of 9%, which I argue is really much more than that, uh, I don't see how they could possibly raise interest rates anywhere close to what inflation actually is, which makes me question their sincerity as to whether they're truly trying to fight inflation versus what they're saying they're trying to do just to make it look as though they're doing something, which makes me believe they're eventually going to pivot maybe at the end of the year and eventually lower interest rates again just to save the market. Mm. I don't know. I guess another, yeah, yeah. I guess another uh, foundational question too for those who are unfamiliar and actually Ray Dalio, who you mentioned has some great content about understanding how the economy works. But so what is the correlation then historically and, and with how it works? Why does, why would the fed raising interest rates combat or tamp down on inflation? Raising interest rates will help uh, another way of saying economic tightening and reducing the supply of money. One thing I remember, and I'm certainly not an economist, but I, I do remember a little bit from my sophomore year of high school economics class. Uh, and what I remember is borrowing creates money. And the more they keep interest rates artificially low, the more money that gets borrowed and the more um, loans people take out, the more mortgages that we take out. Uh, when interest rates are higher, that makes it more difficult to buy a home because then depending on how much higher interest rates get, that significantly raises your monthly cost of a mortgage, your monthly mortgage payment. So the higher the interest rates get, it slows down what you call the velocity of money. And then there's just not as much money to invest. There, there's less free cash flow. There's less money to invest in the markets. Um, there's less money to buy stuff. So certain consumer goods, uh, people are going to have to reduce their prices a little bit. Uh, people aren't going to go out to dinner as much. Maybe you'll see a restaurant that's full versus uh, when interest rates rise a little bit and people don't have as much money to spend. Maybe you'll see a couple of empty tables and the restaurant still has to meet its fixed cost. So some places may not be able to reduce their prices, but they just might have reduced revenue. Uh, so I hope that answers your question. I try not to go on uh, too much of a tangent, but basically money is tighter. There's not as much money floating. And for that reason, people don't have as much discretionary cash flow uh, to spend, hence the drop in prices, including asset prices. Right. So essentially the vendors or the suppliers of goods and services are forced to lower their prices because there's less money for consumers to spend on those goods and services. Yeah. Uh, although some prices may not drop as much, I guess it depends. I mean, and then I guess I'll remember a little bit about elastic versus inelastic demand and some goods are more elastic where their consumers are more price sensitive uh, to what they're buying. But goods that we need like, you know, crops, agriculture, corn, wheat, soy, uh, I don't know if those uh, prices uh, will decrease as much as other goods uh, like, you know, industrial metals. Uh, some people are more worried about investing. And silver is interesting because it's both a precious and an industrial metal, and that price might drop. 
but other goods where you know it's stuff that we actually need to buy, uh, that demand might be more inelastic, and therefore meaning consumers might be less sensitive. Economics is complicated, so I wish I had a clear answer. <laughs> so I have a question about the mechanics of it. So Fed raises sure. interest rate, banks correspondingly, their mortgage rates go up essentially. Are those two, is there a legal binding or is it something that a bank, I, I understand that in the real world, A produces B, Fed interest rate increases, banks, uh, lending rates increase. Is that because the banks are borrowing the principal from the Fed that they pass down to the consumer who's buying a house? Or, or what is the kind of um, um, forced link there that makes the bank follow the interest rate? Yeah, another good question. I'll admit that there are probably I'll probably have to refer uh, people listening into you to people like uh, – Peter Schiff, for example, who are probably better able he able to explain the mechanics. He gives some really, really detailed economic commentary on the inner workings of the Fed and the federal funds rate, um, and you know more specifically how that works. So sometimes, you know, if I don't know something, I'll be the first to admit that I don't know. And I mean, these are really great questions. Uh, next time, I think I'll have to be a little more prepared. I'm going to have to study up on my economics to, uh, <laughs> um, to explain a little more. What I do know is that it's possible like the market could stop like, you know, listening to the Fed and the Fed could raise interest rates, but uh, people might be so skeptical of bonds that bond yields, d- despite the Federal Reserve, let's say, trying to keep interest rates down, uh, the market may say, no, uh, we still want to be compensated more for what we perceive as bonds that are riskier than um, what you're claiming them to be based on the interest rate uh, that you're setting. And I don't know, it's, it's going to be really interesting times, basically. Yeah. Also, for anyone listening, uh, a bond is, a, is government debt. So basically, you borrow money from a government, and they promise to pay you back with a certain rate of could be, or It could be private debt, um, too. Could be corporate bonds. And okay, corporate bonds, of course, carry with it. They don't have the same guarantee. So typically investors will demand a higher return. But what's really crazy is like talking about these inverted yield curves. I mean, typically when you lend money for a longer period of time, you're going to demand a higher rate of return to compensate you for that risk. And typically when yield curves become upside down, uh, that's indicative that we're in a recession. Now, but speaking of guarantees, I've started, you know, thinking about whether or not CDs or treasury bonds or treasury bills uh, could be a good idea. Um, if you're unsure of what the market's going to do in the next year for everyone that's looking to what they do with their money, earning a 3% return is a lot better than uh, earning a negative return of any amount, and especially when that 3% return is guaranteed by the federal government. Now, I don't think much of long-term guarantees, but a short-term guarantee uh, isn't something I'd really worry too much about. That's really interesting. Nice. Oh, one other quick thing to add, sorry to interrupt, is government I-bonds. There's a great video from a 
company called um, a YouTube channel called Wealthion that explains them in detail. But you can earn an effective rate of 9.62% by investing in government I bonds. The limit is $10,000 uh, per person. Uh, but that can be a very, very attractive investment right now. You have nice. to hold it at least a year and at least five years to not forego the last three months of interest. But sorry, go ahead. You had another question. Three months of interest. That's great. That's, I've never heard yeah. of that. Thank you. So uh, we'll jump to the conversation game in a moment, but where can the audience find your uh, services and for anyone out there who's looking to you know, find a 401k fund? Yeah, so anyone looking to search for a 401k provider, this might be a little more relevant to employers, but this is really good for employees that might want to bring this up to their employers, um, is mm. going to 401kprovidersearch.com. Uh, my personal website is just my name, paulsipple.com. That's S-I-P-P-I-L. Um, and if you just type me into YouTube, uh, there's not many subscribers on my YouTube channel, but um, you just type my name, Paul Sipple, into YouTube, and you'll, uh, you'll come across my YouTube channel, which I've done several different videos on investing, including, and as you mentioned earlier, I've done multiple reviews of guideline. I'm literally the only advisor who's ever done this because I've gone through YouTube. I don't see any of them who's done actual reviews of 401k providers like guideline principal, John Hancock, and some smaller providers as well. And that, I think those videos are very helpful for people again, who want to figure out, uh, which 401k provider to select. And my blog, which is a link to on my personal website, is retirementracket.com. That gives you an idea, not surprisingly, <laughs> what I think about the industry. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Thank you for, for doing the work you do. I think there are very few people educating, right? And a lot of people just being opportunists, which is, which is fine in some ways, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the, the game we play, but yeah, I think it's awesome that you're um, educating and letting people know about their options and their rights. Yeah, thank you. For sure. Okay. So conversation game spark by seek discomfort is the name of the game. We each get one question and would you like to go first or second, Paul? Um, second, I miss this. I'm new to the game. Uh, okay. Sure, sure, for sure. I'll read my question. If I knew I only had one year left on earth, what would change about my life and why? I would probably move home. Uh, actually, I would probably take six months to travel. I'd go to New Zealand. I would go do a crazy... Um, like bike race, like some like gnarly mountain bike race. Um, I would go play rugby New Zealand and I would go on a food tour and eat a lot of delicious food all around the world. And then I would go home. Um, and why I think, because I think those are just the things I value both, uh, kind of new experiences, kind of doing some things I'm passionate about and then go home and spend time with family before, <laughs> the before the end. <laughs> Good question. For sure. Okay, here's yours. What have you dreamed of doing for a long? 
Good question. So I'm doing actually a lot. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm reading out. Okay. Question. What have I dreamed of doing? And for a long time, and what's holding me back from doing it? My first thought is I'm doing a lot of what I'm doing. So, for example, I you know was working in public accounting and I left to become a financial advisor, but I was affiliated with a, a large uh, a large company, and I you know wasn't really doing what I wanted to do. So, doing what I'm doing now. Um, about 12 years ago, I went off on my own and like from a professional standpoint, this is exactly what I always wanted to do. Um, I also recently started a, a separate YouTube channel, which is something I always wanted to do called Paul's Two Cents. And it's all about health nice. and fitness and wellness, which <laughs> is those are personal hobbies of mine. There's an amazing book. Um, I can't remember the exact term. His name is Safedine Amos. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. He was interviewed by Lex Friedman and probably a few others. Uh, and he talks about the connection between the Federal Reserve and money printing and food, which is just fascinating because all these things I'm, I like and some of which uh, that I'm talking about and how the misallocation of resources has caused uh, our food to be much less nutrient dense because so much money is being directed into only like corn, wheat, soy, and rice, and not into uh, more nutrient-dense foods and crops. Uh, so I've made all these videos sharing all this information about health, fitness, and wellness because I read about these topics um, you know, a lot in my spare time. Uh, so I'm trying to think of what else I would do. You know what? The one thing, maybe get a dog. <laughs> and the reason I say that is I grew up with dogs. <laughs> Uh, my family all grew up with dogs, and just due to everything I have going on in my life, um, I just figured, I, you know, I don't really have time, you know, to take care of a dog. But if I thought about things differently, you know, <laughs> I know that's an unusual answer because I'm doing so many other things I want to do. I think that is something uh, that I would do. Then I'm, you know, with me being the primary caretaker instead of uh, growing up and you know, it's my parents' responsibility. And what's holding me back, again, is just not enough time. Hell yeah, man. Get, get a dog. <laughs> yeah. You can include uh, – it's, it's a good way to stay active too. Yeah, yeah for sure. Awesome, thank Paul. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, looking forward to checking out your, your personal and professional work. And it was a real pleasure. Thanks for coming thank on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great being out here. Well, there it is, folks. I hope you enjoyed that one with Paul. I certainly did. The biggest thing sticking out to me at this moment from our conversation is the idea of diversification of investments for us in America or American earners, people earning money living in the United States, would be international investments. So leaving the U.S. markets, leaving only U.S. companies. And I think it's kind of interesting because it reflects the Americentricism that is pervasive and just part of being an American. We have essentially everything we need here and there is no real need reason to diversify our news sources, friend groups, influences, food, culture, cuisine. You know, there is a great reason to do those things, but we're not forced to living in the United States and thinking about an international investor from a different country, a different market, they're almost certainly going to be 
holding positions in international markets or international companies because that's just the way it is. There's the right now the financial world centers in New York and I think it's also interesting what Paul's alluding to is that that's impermanent in some way and that empires fall. So will the United States be replaced, for example, in the coming years as the world's reserve currency, for example? Interesting stuff to think about. There's a wealth of information out there to learn about the economic game, our role in it, and how to play it. And this conversation was a very good reminder of that for me. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau Podcast. (laughs) 